Early this year, Aaron and Melissa Klein, Christian owners of Sweet Cakes by Melissa, a bakery in Gresham, Oregon, were sued by a homosexual couple for not agreeing to bake them a wedding cake. The controversy has forced the Kleins to close up shop. In June of this year, the state of Washington's Attorney General brought legal action against Arlene's Flowers and Gifts, a decades-old florist that had been serving the community, but who refused to supply flowers for a same-sex wedding. Owner, Baronelli Stutzman, she countersued. She said it was time to take a stand for what she believes. Just last month, the New Mexico Supreme Court ruled that photographer Elaine Huggenen was guilty of violating the state's Human Rights Act by refusing to serve as a photographer at a same-sex ceremony. In all three cases, the refusal was the result of deeply held Christian convictions on the part of the providers. In the past, Americans with religious persuasions were protected against unlawful discrimination. The law respected our religious convictions. And yet today, the intent of those laws has been turned topsy-turvy. San Antonio, Texas just passed an ordinance that will make it illegal for you to work for or do business in the city if you oppose same-sex marriage, speak against homosexuality, or even attend a church that does. In this country, we've forgotten that freedom isn't just a tolerance for behaviors that push against traditional boundaries. Freedom also allows people of conscience with biblical convictions about right and wrong to live out those beliefs in meaningful ways. Anti-discrimination laws put on the books to protect people of faith are being used today for the exact opposite purpose— to punish religious convictions. Sadly today, it's illegal to discriminate against anyone because of their religious beliefs unless those religious beliefs are biblically orthodox Christianity. And it's not just the Bible's view on homosexuality that rankles the ire of the culture. A Christian insists on absolutes. We believe that God has spoken That morality isn't up for discussion or debate or dialogue or compromise. There is a right way and there is a wrong way. There is a truth and a false. We don't all get to vote on what's true. We even believe that not all religions are qualitatively the same. For the last two millenniums, Christians have unapologetically declared that Jesus alone can send a person to heaven that all other religions will send you to hell. But today, that gets branded as hate speech. In fact, it's the curious habit of today's pluralism to label anything that contradicts its own beliefs as hateful. Can't we disagree without it being labeled hate? I have pals with whom I agree to disagree, and we're still friends. My wife... And I agree to disagree at times, and we still love each other. When Christians disagree, why are we labeled haters? 
It seems to me it is a loving act to go out of your way to sell someone who's lost that they can be found. Today's religious tolerance includes the beliefs of everything and everyone except those of Christianity. Even Islam gets a pass. I don't understand this. Don't you realize that Islam makes claims of exclusivity? Do you really assume that the Ayatollah respects other beliefs and wants to coexist with other religions? I mean, in every Islamic country today, Christians are encouraged, if not forced, to convert to Islam, but it is against the law for a Muslim to convert to Christianity. And yet our media and government and even our president constantly portrays Islam in a favorable light. Christianity has become the picked-on religion. Yet that's what you would expect when biblical faith gets relegated to minority status. Laws on the books put there for other reasons get used against believers. And this is exactly what we see happening in Daniel chapter 6. The chapter begins... It pleased Darius, Darius was the new Persian ruler of the city of Babylon, to set over the kingdom 120 satraps to be over the whole kingdom, and over these three governors, of whom Daniel was one, that the satraps might give account to them so that the king would suffer no loss. Now, a satrap was a regional, provincial leader. And these satraps, they reported to three governors, one of which was Daniel. To understand Daniel's place in the world, you need to think of Henry Kissinger, or James Baker, or Madeleine Albright, or Warren Christopher, or Colin Powell. These people are politicians, but not the kind that kiss babies and work the crowd and run for office. These folks are more statesmen bureaucrats, professionals who fill an administrative post in someone else's government. And this was Daniel. He was a professional diplomat. His career transcended multiple administrations. He even managed to secure employment in this new empire. When Persia conquered Babylon, the Persian king Darius appointed Daniel to a seat in his cabinet. You remember, Daniel came to Babylon as a Jewish POW. And yet how quickly he rose to prominence. He became one of the most powerful figures of his day. Daniel lived an amazing life. He would have made a great subject for one of those A&E biography specials. And the distinguishing accomplishment of Daniel's life was to remain a man of faith even in a faithless, secular environment. Daniel was a godly man in an ungodly land. Were his convictions tested? Time and time again. Did he draw fire from his enemies? Over and over. But did he prevail? Yes. By a courageous faith and by the grace of God, he continued to climb in favor and in prominence. You see, the darker a society grows, the more of a backdrop it becomes for people of faith to shine their light brightly. Today, the church needs modern Daniels who will invade the secular space without compromising their convictions or without becoming tainted by the evil in the culture. We need believers unafraid 
of the lion's den. Notice verse 3. Then this Daniel distinguished himself above the governors and satraps because an excellent spirit was in him. And the king gave thought to setting him over the whole realm. Now the new rulers had just moved in, and yet they admired a quality about this Daniel. He had an excellent spirit in him. I mean, they could tell that this was a man of substance. Daniel had some power under the hood. And Daniel was not a young buck at this time. He was an old guy. In Daniel chapter 6, keep in mind, Daniel is in his late 80s. And he's still going strong. He's even up for another promotion. Reminds me of the gal who turned 100 years old. 100 years old. She was asked, do you have any kids? She replied, not yet. (laughs) Hey, age is always relative. Someone once said, age is mind over matter. If you don't mind, then it don't matter. Verse 4, so the governors and satraps sought to find some charge against Daniel concerning the kingdom. But they could find no charge or fault because he was faithful. Nor was there any error or fault found in him. This Daniel, he had an impeccable record. There was nothing about the way Daniel had conducted himself on the job or at home or on business trips that had raised the slightest suspicion of any impropriety. No girlfriends on the side. No secret sexting. No campaign finance irregularities, no political paybacks, no insider trading, no IRS scandals. Daniel even paid Social Security tax on his domestic workers. I mean, Daniel was blameless. Oh, that our enemies had the same trouble finding a chink in our armor. Seriously, what if a private eye spent the next 30 days turning your life upside down? He scoured your online accounts and scanned your hard drives and bugged your conversations and wiretapped your phone and put a surveillance camera on you. What kind of dirt would he find? Well, Daniel was put under the same kind of scrutiny. And they said there's nothing with which we can accuse him. Actually, what they said about Daniel is amazing. Verse 5. Then these men said, we shall not find any charge against this Daniel unless we find it against him concerning the law of his God. He was so devoted to God. The only way we can trip him up is if it relates to his faithfulness to God. They thought the only way they could force Daniel was to choose between obedience to God and obedience to Darius, the king. That Daniel if given that choice, would surely choose God, and thus they could trump up some disloyalty toward Darius. They can't fault Daniel, so they try to fool Darius. And so behind closed doors, they hatch a plot to kill Daniel. So these governors and satraps, they thronged before the king, and they said thus to him, King Darius, live forever. All the governors of the kingdom, the administrators and satraps, The counselors and advisors have consulted together to establish a royal statute and to make a firm decree that whoever petitions any god or man for 30 days except you, O king, shall be cast 
into the den of lions. These men were envious of Daniel's ability and his successes. I've heard it put, jealousy is the tribute that mediocrity pays to excellence. That was certainly the case with these fellows who were under Daniel's authority. It's amazing to me, even though Daniel's 90 years old, these young guns can't even wait for him to die off. I mean, he was a political impediment to their ambitions. And so they came up with this scheme. Notice the three things involved. The first thing their scheme involved was fanfare. They thronged the king. They mobbed King Darius. They said, Darius, live forever. They mobbed him and tried to discombobulate him. Second, they used falsehood. They said, all the governors and satraps have consulted together. They said, all. But I don't think so. Daniel was one of three governors who ruled the land. I'll bet he was never consulted. They used fanfare. They used falsehood. But then third, they employed flattery. They said, whoever petitions any god or man for 30 days except you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. You, king, you deserve a special place in the pantheon of political importance. For 30 days, prayers to anyone but you, Darius, should be illegal. They were flattering him. Fanfare, falsehood, and flattery make for a good combination. And I'm sure they just happened to have a pen and sheepskin handy, just in case. In verse 8, they insist, Now, O king, establish the decree and sign the writing so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which does not alter. Now, under Babylonian law, the king was supreme. He was considered divine so he could do as he pleased. He could even contradict himself from one day to the next. Whereas the Persian kings, they spoke for the gods. They viewed themselves as their representatives. So once they made a decree, the law had to stand or else the gods would be changing their minds. Thus, if Darius signs this law, there's no going back. It's a done deal. Which makes verse 9 so ominous. Therefore, King Darius signed the written decree. And what a horrible law this was. I mean, Darius had given zero thought to its implications. Imagine six fo- sick folks. they got to wait 30 days now before they can pray to God for their healing. Farmers have to wait 30 days to pray for rain. School kids taking tests now have to wait 30 days without any... Pr- I'm sure grades went downhill for those 30 days. What if your baseball team is headed for the playoffs and you can't pray for 30 days? The playoffs could be over. This was a stupid decision on all fronts. But most significant is what comes next. Verse 10 tracks Daniel's reaction. Now when Daniel knew that the writing was signed, he went home. Notice Daniel didn't run to plead with the king. He didn't go to the courthouse to file an injunction. He didn't contact his constituency to sign a petition. He didn't bombard the palace switchboard with angry callers. No, once Daniel knew that this was no rumor, that Darius had actually signed this law, this piece of legislation into law, we're told Daniel 
went home. And in his upper room, with his windows open toward Jerusalem, he knelt down on his knees three times that day and prayed and gave thanks before his God, as was his custom since early days. Daniel didn't rattle. He didn't fret. He didn't panic. He prayed. Daniel just does what Daniel always does. He prays. You know, over the years, Daniel had developed a pattern, a discipline of holiness. It included praying three times a day. Like the old Dr. Pepper slogan, 10, 2, and 4. You're supposed to drink Dr. Pepper three times a day. Daniel prayed three times a day. Jewish custom called for prayer at sunrise, and then at noon, and then at sunset. This is why King David wrote in Psalm 55, verse 17, Evening and morning and at noon I will pray and cry aloud, and she, he shall hear my voice. I think we all should take note of Daniel's habitual holiness. He had consistent patterns in his life that strengthened his resolve and formed his character. Notice first, he had a place to pray. We're told that he went to his upper room. Maybe it was just quieter there, sort of above the street noise. But Daniel had a specific location that had been designated for prayer. That could be a good idea for you. Second, he had regular times or periods of the day for prayer. His prayer life was recurrent. He had these regular appointments with God that he almost never, ever broke. Third, Daniel had a posture for prayer. We're told that he knelt. Now, nowhere does the Bible say you have to kneel or have to close your eyes to pray. These are mere customs. In fact, the Bible gives us examples of all kinds of different postures for prayer. There's standing on your feet. There's raising holy hands to the Lord. There's lying prostrate on your face. But for Daniel, apparently, bending his knee helped him humble his heart. That's the significance of any posture. Does it help you put your attitude in the right frame for prayer? Heard a great poem on prayer. The proper way for a man to pray, says Deacon Lemuel Keyes, and the only proper attitude is down upon one's knees. No, I should say the way to pray, says Reverend Dr. Wise, is standing straight with outstretched arms and wrapped in upturned eyes. Oh, no, 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 said Elmer Slow. Such posture is too proud. A man should pray with eyes fast closed and his head contritely bowed. It seems to me his hands should be austerely clasped in front, both hands pointing toward the ground, said Reverend Dr. Blunt. Last year I fell in Hitchens' well, head first, said Cyrus Brown, and both my heels were sticking up and my head was pointing down. And I made a prayer right then and there, the best I ever said. The prayingest prayer I ever prayed was standing on my head. It doesn't really matter what posture you assume, as long as you pray. Experiment with the posture, the place, the period of the day, whatever helps you pray. And then fourth, Daniel's prayer was pointed toward Jerusalem, toward the temple, the site of the temple. In the Old Testament, God's presence rested in the Holy of Holies there in Jerusalem. 
That's why God told the temple's builder, King Solomon, that later Israel would rebel and be displaced into other lands. And they should look back to Jerusalem and they should pray and they should repent toward Jerusalem. In a sense, all prayer traveled through Jerusalem. Even today, Jews can log onto the internet and they can come to the temple, literally the western wall via webcam. Rather than just stray pray, just pray without any direction, Jews believe that their prayers have a better opportunity to be answered if they pray pointed toward the temple site. As Christians, we also should be pointed in our praying. We should make sure that our prayers are pointed or aimed not toward some physical location or toward a temple on earth, but rather we should pray and point our prayers toward Jesus Christ who lives for us in the heavenly temple, who's our high priest and ever makes intercession for us. Today, all heard prayers travel through Jesus. And then fifth, notice that Daniel had a purpose for his prayer. Despite all that was going on around him, we're told he gave thanks before his God. Even though he's sealing his death sentence now with this prayer, he still realizes that it's his duty as a child of God to give his father thanks and praise. He had a purpose for his prayers, and that was to show gratitude. So here are the five keys to an effective prayer life. Find a place to pray. Find a period of the day to pray. Have a prayer posture in mind. Make sure your prayers are pointed in the right direction toward Jesus. And then, of course, the purpose of all prayer is to praise Him regardless of our circumstances. And yet, even with such a habitual prayer life, even having a regular devotional life, I would imagine that under the circumstances, Daniel was tempted to alter his habits a bit. He's being watched now. This decree has been signed into law. It's going to put him at odds with the Medes and the Persians. Why not make a few minor modifications to your normal routine? If I had been Daniel, I probably would have rationalized, God, you can hear me with the window shut, can't you? They really don't have to be opened. And God, why, why am I always praying in the daytime? It's probably time I, I start praying at night, maybe at 1, 3, and 5 in the morning. You know, it's quieter then, less distractions. Or instead of in front of the window, why not, let me try that laying under your bed for a little while. Maybe that'll work for me. You know, it's amazing how our devotion to God often hinges on the smallest stuff. It's the little things. It's the little things we're tempted to just brush off as if they don't matter, but they actually do. A peek at this, a nibble at that. What's the big deal? But it is. We know in our hearts that it is. Just because you can excuse it away doesn't mean you don't know in your heart that it's a compromise. You know that God knows it's an act of cowardice or it's a sin or it's a deliberate rebellion. God knew where to draw, Daniel knew where to draw the line between faithfulness and foolishness. I really admire the balance of Daniel's approach. He didn't invite persecution, but neither did he run from it. Daniel was in the minority, but that didn't mean that he desired to be a martyr. 
We learned in chapter 1 that over many decades, God had enabled Daniel with the wisdom to navigate his survival in this pagan land. Daniel was never foolish. Here he doesn't organize a prayer vigil at the palace to protest the king's tyranny. He doesn't do something like that. But neither does he cower away from the public eye and hide what he's doing. No, he goes about his normal routine. He maintained his normal devotion and he refused to let the fear of man alter his approach to God. And I think this is the soul-searching question for you and me. Do we ever let the fear of man alter our approach to God? If so, we've made a compromise. In a subtle way, perhaps, we've denied our Lord. Notice verse 11. Then these men assembled and they found Daniel praying and making supplication before his God. I mean, they had a stakeout right there in front of Daniel's condo. They caught him in the act. And they went before the king and they spoke concerning the king's decree. Have you not signed a decree that every man who petitions any god or man within 30 days except you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions? I'm sure the king is thinking, you guys have amnesia? You were just here flattering me. Of course I have. The king answered and said, The thing is true according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which does not alter. So they answered and said before the king, Well, that Daniel. And I am sure the moment they mentioned his name, the king realized that he'd been snookered, bamboozled. This had never been about his praise, his glory. This had always been about their hatred of Daniel. They say, that Daniel, who is one of the captives from Judah, does not show due regard for you, O king, or for the decree that you have signed, but he makes his petition three times a day. And the king, when he heard these words, was greatly displeased with himself. Not with Daniel. It wasn't with Daniel he was displeased. He was displeased with himself. He knew he'd made a stupid mistake. Darius knew now the impossible situation that he had created for his friend, for this devout man. And he, or Darius, set his heart on Daniel to deliver him. And he labored till the going down of the sun to deliver him. For the rest of the day, Darius dropped all of his official business And his sole pursuit was to try to find a loophole that would enable him to save Daniel from the den of lions. Verse 15, Then these men approached the king and said to the king, Know, O king, that it is the law of the Medes and Persians that no decree or statute which the king establishes may be changed. So the king gave the command. He had no other choice. And they brought Daniel and cast him into the den of lions. But the king spoke, saying to Daniel, Your God, whom you serve continually, he will deliver you. And I'm sure part of Darius's confidence that God would deliver Daniel is in the fact that Daniel served his God continually. I like that. What a testimony. He served the Lord constantly, continually. It wasn't just a random thing. He didn't just, oh, well, I, did a, I had a good day today. He had a good day every day. He served the Lord continually, day in, day out. His life was a flow of uninterrupted faithfulness. 
But what an example for you and me. Realize a lion's den is a rare trial in any age. Folks aren't often tossed to hungry lions. But Daniel prepared for this rare trial by a daily consistency in his life. You prepare for the rare with the routine. G. Campbell Morgan wrote, The occasional is always affected by the habitual. In other words, it's our daily, ordinary faithfulness that prepares us for the extraordinary trial. Verse 17, Then a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet ring and with the signets of his lords that the purpose concerning Daniel might not be changed. Darius has done his duty, but it was certainly not his desire. Now the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting. And no entertainment tonight. No musicians were brought before him. Also his sleep went from him. Man, he tossed and turned all night long. He ate a bunch of cookies and drank a lot of milk and still couldn't go to sleep. He was troubled by his conscience. You know, they say the softest pillow is a clear conscience. If so... Then Darius spent the night on a bed of nails. Then the king rose very early in the morning and went in haste to the den of lions. And when he came to the den, he cried out with a lamenting voice to Daniel. The king spoke, saying to Daniel, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve, continually been able to deliver you from the lions? I wonder if Daniel didn't pause a second or two just for effect. Just to kind of make the king sweat a little bit. His rash decree certainly deserved it. Well, then Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. You know, in Daniel's reply, you you hear a hint of cheerfulness. The king and the palace had spent the night in turmoil while Daniel in the lion's den had been at peace. You'd expect the roles to be reversed, wouldn't you? Darius at peace and Daniel restless. But Daniel rested in the den as Darius worried in his sin. The most peaceful place on earth is in the center of God's will, even if it places you in a den of man-eaters. Actually, Daniel would rest in peace either way, in the mouths of these lions or in the arms of his God, either way. Like what Shakespeare said, cowards die many times before their deaths, the valiant taste of death but once. Daniel explains how God did it in verse 22. He says, My God sent his angel and shut the lion's mouths so that they have not hurt me, because I was found innocent before him. And also, O king, I have done no wrong before you. Daniel made it clear that an angel of God had come in the middle of the night and had struck the lions with lockjaw. God had intervened spiritually and supernaturally. Reminds me of the little girl who heard the story of Daniel in the lion's den in Sunday school. Her teacher asked the class how Daniel could have been so brave. She replied, Daniel wasn't afraid because he knew one of the lions was the lion of the tribe of Judah. <laughs> It could be that this angel or this messenger was the pre-incarnate Christ. In Daniel chapter 3, 
one like unto the Son of God showed up in the fiery furnace, why not here in the lion's den? Christ himself may have helped Daniel. And that would be an encouragement for you and me, wouldn't it? 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8 describes Satan as a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. The devil sets tricks and traps for us. At times, every Christian should be, pre- be prepared to spend a night or two in the lion's den. But it's there that we taste the power of the Lion of Judah. What better place to learn the Lord's presence, to learn the Lord's faithfulness to His promise to you and me that He will never leave us or forsake us. What better place to learn that lesson than in the den of lions? It's interesting in verse 22, Daniel says that an angel shut the lion's mouths. But what stopped the lions from mauling him with their their paws and eating him later? That's what I want to (laughs) know. I wouldn't want to diminish Daniel's explanation in any way, but I wonder if the lions steered clear of Daniel for another reason also. As some of you might know, I'm not really fond of dogs. It doesn't make me a bad person. I mean, I just, I just don't like dogs. I didn't grow up around dogs. Blame my parents. <laughs> and dogs make me uneasy to this very day. I just don't like, I don't like being around strange dogs. It takes me a while to warm up to a dog. Which is why whenever I walk into a yard with a really big dog, you know what happens? Immediately that dog seeks me out. Because he knows I'm uneasy and he sniffs me. And he starts thinking about how he's going to eat me. (laughs) Or at least that's what I think he's thinking. I think the dog senses my fear and my uneasiness. But could Daniel's courageous faith have had the opposite effect on these lions? I mean, he was so confident in God, so bold and brave. I bet you the lions were afraid of him. Daniel knew that his plight would be determined by the hand of God, not by the claws or the jaws of these lions. Charles Spurgeon used to say, It's a good thing those lions didn't eat old Daniel. They would have choked on him. Daniel was half grit and half backbone. Perhaps God was actually looking out for the lions. They might have broken their teeth on the tough faith of Daniel. I think a Christian minority needs this kind of tough faith. This past spring, Jason Collins became the first NBA player to come out of the closet and reveal his homosexuality. The mainstream media went out of their way to applaud Collins for his decision and and for his lifestyle. Everyone that is except ESPN reporter Chris Broussard. In an episode of Outside the Lines, Broussard, a Christian, He commented on Collins' homosexuality. He said, if you're openly living that type of lifestyle, and of course this was in the the normal course of the conversation. He says, if you're openly living that type of lifestyle, then the Bible says that's a sin. And if you're openly living in unrepentant sin, whatever it may be, not just homosexuality, but adultery or fornication or premarital sex between heterosexuals, whatever it may be, I believe that's walking in open rebellion to God and to Jesus Christ. So I would not characterize that person as a Christian because I don't think the Bible would characterize him as a Christian. 
Now, Chris Broussard said nothing that Christians haven't been saying for thousands of years. Yet suddenly, this man found himself in the lion's den. Calls came in from all quarters wanting Broussard to be immediately fired. One editorial noted, In the current culture, it takes more courage for someone like Chris Broussard to speak out than it does for Jason Collins to come out. Today, the roles have been reversed. Christians are the ones who are hiding in the closet, afraid of persecution for simply being who they are and believing what they do. Joe Carter of the Christian Coalition says, Opposing homosexuality can cause people to lose their jobs and haunt them forever. It's easier just to go along. Listen to those words again. It's easier to just go along. And that's not just true for standing up for the biblical view of gender and sexuality. It's true for all kinds of potential compromises. But real faith can't just go along. Like Daniel, faith is called on to make a stand for God. Even if that puts us in the mouths of the lions. Scottish preacher Alexander McLaren once said, Unless you are prepared to be in the minority... And now and then be called narrow, fanatic, and to be laughed at by men because you will not do what they do, but abstain and resist, then there is little chance of your ever making much of your Christian profession. Daniel was one man of faith in a sea of paganism, but he stood out because he stood up for God's truth. How about you? Are you standing up for God's truth? Notice verse 23. Now the king was exceedingly glad for him and commanded that they should take Daniel up out of the den. And so Daniel was taken up out of the den and no injury whatever was found on him because he believed in his God. Not the least little scrape or scratch. And the king gave the command and they brought those men who had accused Daniel and they cast them into the den of lions. Them, their children, and their wives, and the lions overpowered them and broke all their bones in pieces before they ever came to the bottom of the den. They didn't even hit the floor before the lions devoured them. Apparently, there was nothing wrong with the lions. Certainly nothing deficient about their appetite or the sharpness of their teeth. Then King Darius, he wrote, and he issued a royal decree to all peoples, Nations and languages that dwell in all the earth. Peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree that in every dominion of my kingdom, men must tremble and fear before the God of Daniel. Now think about this. Daniel, Darius had been raised in a pagan environment. He'd been an idolater all of his life. Poor Darius had lived in darkness, but now the light is starting to dawn. He has begun to fear the Lord. He says, in all my kingdom, men must tremble and fear this God, the God of Daniel. You remember Proverbs 9 verse 10? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Oh, that we would fear the Lord. You know, there is a movement in today's church that shies away from God's harder truths, from taking unpopular stands, Its proponents go out of their way to keep from offending unbelievers and 
supposedly driving them from Christianity. But what about offending God? That's what I want to know. How concerned are we about offending God? Author David Wells writes, The born-again marketing church has calculated that unless it makes deep, serious cultural adaptations, it will go out of business, especially with the younger generations. What it has not considered carefully enough is that it may well be putting itself out of business with God. Hey, I would rather be with God in the lion's den than apart from Him in the palace. The greatest fear facing Daniel was not being thrown in the lion's den, but refusing to stand up for God. Daniel feared his God more than he did these lions. And now Darius does too. He writes, For he is the living God and steadfast forever. His kingdom is the one which shall not be destroyed, and his dominion shall endure to the end. It's God's kingdom, not the kingdom of the Medes and Persians that will last forever. Darius concludes, he delivers and rescues, and he works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth, who has delivered Daniel from the power of the lions. And thus the chapter ends. So this Daniel prospered in the reign of Darius and in the reign of Cyrus the Persian. Men and women with a committed faith, can prosper like Daniel, even in heathen surroundings, by not backing down, by standing up and showing a backbone and trusting God, even in the den of lions. I want to close by quoting a Presbyterian pastor named Katsuki Hirano. Pastor Katsuki lives in Japan. Did you know that in Japan... Less than 1% of his countrymen are Christians. I mean, there are very few Christians in Japan. But Pastor Katsuki, he explains, the smallness of the church in Japan doesn't matter for us. Our responsibility is to preach the Word of God faithfully. After that, God will do something, although we cannot predict what. Katsuki continues, I think the lesson for American churches and pastors is, don't be afraid to become a minority. God's word is still living among us in Japan. In the years to come, a Christian minority may no longer have a majority of the votes in the ballot box. We may no longer get preferential treatment from legislatures and elected officials. We may no longer be respected by the society at large for the good that we do or the love that we show. Our persuasion may not be the culture's dominant philosophy. The traditions and the Christian underpinnings of our culture may long be forgotten. We may get maligned and misrepresented, but no matter. I won't be the least bit discouraged. For the gospel needs none of the above to survive and to thrive. Christianity has prospered under far worse conditions. Jesus equips every generation of Christians with His infallible Word and His precious promises and His sovereign Spirit. Ultimately, the church of Jesus Christ will prevail. But the one wave that will sink our ship now is fear. It's fear. Don't allow yourself to get frightened or to be bullied. Daniel didn't go out looking for a fight, but when it came to him, he was brave 
and he was full of faith, and he was faithful. It's been said Daniel was a stand-up person in a bow-down world. Let's dare to be a Daniel. Hey, take a stand for God when it's your turn, and he'll be with you, even in the den of lions.